The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, amen and amen. And if you don't know David yet, you need to introduce yourself to him. He's a great guy. He might even change your life. Um, But good morning. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Craig. I'm one of the pastors here. And this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2 together. So if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. Sometimes the best things in life are hidden right out in the open. Sometimes the very things we're looking for are right in front of us. We might even be looking at them. Take the town of Bridgewater, Massachusetts, for example. It's a small town, uh, and in one of their city office buildings, they had like the typical art you would expect in a city office building. And there was one painting that thousands of people had walked by each year. Uh, And so many people had seen this and just assumed, oh, it's just a normal piece of art. But there was one person from out of town who saw this painting and said, no, no, I think there's something special here. I think this is a unique painting. And so they brought in an art appraiser who found out there was actually a Frank Tenney Johnson original. And that piece of art, which they probably paid like 40 bucks for, appraised for $375,000. Right there in the open. So many people had walked by it. Or the movie Stuart Little. Do you guys remember that movie? A few years ago, an art historian, his son was sick. And so he's like, all right, I'll take the day off. We're going to hang out and we're going to watch Stuart Little, right? Totally normal thing to do. And so uh, they put on the movie, and as they're watching the movie, this historian kind of like slides back into work mode, and he notices that one of the paintings on the set looks like a painting called Sleeping Lady with a Black Vase. Sleeping Lady with a Black Vase, though, has been missing since 1928. So he did some due diligence, got in touch with the set director, and asked if he could see the painting. She told him, like, sure, yeah, it's something I bought at an estate sale in L.A., cost me like 500 bucks. He looked at it, turned out it was an original, and it appraised for $178,000. And you've probably even seen it. It's just right there in the open. Well, when it comes to the Christmas story, we are much like those people. We see it, we, we hear it, we know it. It's familiar terrain. It's a hike we've all done before. Some of you can even quote it from memory. You remember Linus from A Peanuts Christmas Story? You, you hear the Christmas story and go, in those days, a decree went out from... Like, your mind just like, kicks into that mode. You know this story. But there are some promises about this story. There's some things Luke tells us that this story does that we just, they just go right over our heads. When the angel first appears to the shepherds, he says this, I come to bring you good tidings of great joy, right? Well, what does that mean? What the angel literally says is this. He says, I'm here to bring you a gospel of great joy. The the shepherds, they were terrified. They go from being terrified to once they see Jesus, they leave rejoicing. And the text says that everybody who saw that with them, who saw the shepherds come and witness the birth of Jesus, it says that they were amazed. Now, one person has pointed out, I'm sure when you were born, people were excited. I'm sure some people even cried. Nobody was amazed. So we, we hear that, we see that, and we just read it, and we're like, oh yeah, I know this story. It's familiar. This morning, I want to look at this with fresh eyes with you. I want to hike that familiar terrain, but I want to take our time and look at what we're hiking. I want to, I want to show you the world that Jesus came into. 
You see, the point of the gospel, the point of Luke's gospel, and the point of him telling this birth story is to say that Jesus turned the world upside down. The world was one way, but then when Jesus of Nazareth came in, it was a totally different way. Luke wants you to see this. He says, you can have joy. You can have joy because Jesus steps into brokenness and he takes away its power. You can have joy, not happiness, not some euphoria that's going to be with you for a few minutes and that buzz is going to leave. You can have a deep abiding joy in the midst of this broken world because the Savior came into the brokenness and he turns it upside down. So first we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the brokenness. When when Jesus comes into this world, there's oppression, there's shame, there's chaos, and that's the very world he runs into. He says, this is where I'm headed. I'm headed here to save these people. And the point Luke wants to make is this. You can trust a Savior who does that. So that's what we're going to look at first. And after we see the world that Jesus steps into, we're going to see how he turns it upside down. Luke wants you to see this. Hey, here's a real king. There's been lots of fake kings. There's been lots of kings who make promises. But here's a real king who brings real peace when he turns the world upside down. And then after we see that, we see what Jesus does. We see that Luke shows us the only appropriate response to seeing Jesus' work is joy. So I'm going to read from Luke chapter 2, and then we're going to pray, and we're going to jump right in. Okay, so if you have a Bible, we are in Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the census that took place before Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. And she wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, don't be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today, in David's town, a Savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. This is going to be a sign for you. You're going to find this baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning him, what had been told about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things in her heart and pondered them. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen, 
which were just as they had been told. Let's pray. Father, I pray that as we read this familiar story, your spirit would come and open our eyes, that we would see Jesus. We would see him glorified and exalted and see the work that he's doing, that he's not afraid of brokenness, that he steps into it for us, and that we would trust this Savior. Lord, I pray that I would get out of the way in this process, that no one would really hear from me, but they would hear from your word. God, I thank you for your word and its transforming power, and we look to that now. In Jesus' name, amen. So one scholar, how he describes this text is he says it like this. Luke chapter 2 tells the story of the original nightmare before Christmas. Jesus is born into a world that is not nice. It's totally chaotic. You see, we're familiar with this story, and we kind of read it through 21st century um, eyes. See, we hear, oh, a census is being taken. I know what a census is. That's that thing that like celebrities come on TV every 10 years, and they're like, be counted. And like these hipsters, they like go from door to door, and like, hey, you want to fill out this form? We're here to get demographics of your neighborhood. Like that's what we think of when we hear census. That's not what a census was, though, in the Roman Empire. In the Roman Empire, they, there was one reason to give a census and one reason only taxes. They just wanted to count you so they could take all your money. And we know that these taxes were super oppressive. Why? Because Luke gives us a little hint. He says, hey, this was the census, this one that Caesar Augustus is doing. This is the census that took place before Quirinius's census. And everyone that heard that would have been like, oh, because they knew what Quirinius's census was. Uh, Quirinius was the, the tax that broke everybody's back. When he sent that tax out, there was a riot all throughout the Roman Empire because they said, enough is enough. We would rather fight, risk our lives, than pay these taxes because we can't afford it. So you see, this is, there's oppression here. There's oppression that this is the world that Jesus is stepping into. He wants you to see it. And the question that you're asking is like, wait, is God really in control? Like, is he really in charge? He's made all these promises to his people, and now here they are. Yeah, they might be in Israel, they might be in their homeland, but they're being ruled by this oppressive like, dictator. Like, is God in control? What's going on? Furthermore, the ruler who is ruling is completely oppressive. His name is Caesar Augustus. And what we know about Augustus is this, that Julius Caesar, the one that like Shakespeare wrote the play about, et tu brute, and like there was, a, there was a civil war, everybody turned against Julius Caesar, and it created all this chaos. Well, Caesar Augustus was his adopted son, and he kind of was that guy that like was late to the party and was like, oh, wow, there's chaos. So he gathered up everybody and killed everyone who was fighting and then made these claims about himself. He said, I brought peace on earth. I, I am a son of God. I, I, you don't know one knows who my dad was. It's because God's my dad. And then this is what he said about himself. His favorite title for himself was this, I am Savior and Lord. So here's a guy who's making all these claims and he's crushing God's people. Meanwhile, we're like, what are you up to, God? Why are you letting this happen? Why are you letting your people like, live under this heavy yoke of someone who claims to be good, but he's crushing us? One philosopher says it like this. He says, we're like ants on a Rembrandt. We see yellow, we see blue, but we don't see the full picture. And Luke wants to take a step back and saying, yes, there's evil in the world. 
There's brokenness, but God is behind it, and he's actually manipulating that evil to keep his promise to his people. See, a couple thousand years before this, there was a king. His name was David, and God made a promise to that king. He says, hey, there's someone coming who's going to be a new David. He's going to be like you, but he's going to be better. He's going to rule, and he's really going to bring peace on earth, and he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And so there's all this chaos, and Joseph, like his line, like, okay, the lineage of David, how do we get him back to, how do we get him back to Bethlehem? How is this promise going to be kept, like, kept at all? And God's like, I got this. I'll use a guy who thinks he's large and in charge, and I'm going to use him to accomplish my will. So when you don't know what's going on, when you can't see God's hand in things, look for his heart. He will keep his promise. And Luke wants you to see a God who's working like this so that you trust him. He's saying, trust a God who's in control of history. There's a king here who's making all these promises. He says he's savior. He says he's Lord, but he's crushing you. I'm a God who's in control, and I'm bringing about my promise to save you. But there's more than that. This is, Jesus just wasn't born into a world of oppression. Jesus was also came into the world with shame. There's a ton of shame in the Christmas story. Jesus was born, to, and look at what it says in verse 7. He, um, she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloth. There's this tender care. Mary loves Jesus. And where does she put him as soon as she does that? In a manger. Now, this is so familiar to us, but keep in mind, Jesus didn't have a PR guy. He wasn't like, hey, put me in a manger because a thousand years from now, this will look really good on a Christmas card. People will think I'm like this humble God. So like, please just like set it up like this. No, no, no. Jesus steps into this world with shame. Manger is an old school English word for feeding trough. It's dirty. It's filthy. And the statement that Jesus is making here is he's saying this, I was born in that neighborhood. I was born on those side of the tracks. I was born on the wrong side of town. There's even more shame here, though. Verse 7 says this, why did they place him in a feeding trough? That's kind of unusual. Because there was no guest room available for them. So this is a census, right? So Joseph would have had to leave his hometown, go to the town where his family came from. So this is the days before Airbnb. This is before Motel 6. So when you're going back to your family's town, no doubt he would have gone back to family. Joseph, oh my gosh, you're here for the census. This is great. And you're with your fiance, Mary. And she's pregnant. We don't have any room. Sorry. See that? See the world Jesus came into? Shame. And he doesn't just I see the, the pain out there. He ties himself to our pain and to our brokenness. We don't have a God who can't relate, who just kind of understands what we're walking through. We have a God who saw our brokenness, who saw our shame, and he ties himself to it. He runs into the burning building for his people. Um, my favorite band of all time is Radiohead. And so I've been trying to sneak Radiohead into a sermon for quite some time now, and I finally did it. So there's a Radiohead song, which a lot of people criticize because they think it's kind of a shallow lyric. The lyric goes like this, tear down the government because they don't speak for us. And Radiohead is not trying to advocate for anarchy, like that's why people think it's lame, like wow, a rock band that's for anarchy, super cool. But what he's saying here is this. He's saying, these people, these people in government, my elected officials, they claim to represent me, 
They don't know what my life is like. They live in luxury. I live with the pressure of having to keep my business open. There's people who their livelihoods depend on me. There's all this pressure. They, know, they don't know what that's like. I have to pay through the roof for healthcare, and, and then it still doesn't cover anything. And then after that healthcare, I have to wait on hold with the doctor or like with this insurance rep who doesn't care at all to get things covered. They have great health insurance and they just go and they hang out in their vacation house in Connecticut. Like they have no idea what my life is like. That idea is completely foreign to Christianity. Christianity, we have a God who chases after broken people. He can identify with our pain because he chose to experience it. He chose to write himself into the story in a painful, dark situation. So this week has been a little scary for some people. Los Angeles is burning. And if you look at some of the, the pictures, they're insane. Like there's right beside the 405, right by where the Getty is, you can just see these flames coming down from the hill. And it looks like something from the end of the world. It's totally nuts. Fires are terrifying for us because they represent loss. That house that you've been just like working and working and investing in, gone. Your job, don't know what's going to happen. Loved ones, we have a God who knows loss. He's called the man of sorrows. Jesus didn't live an easy and happy life. He was born into an oppressive government, and he was born into shame in that oppressive government. Why? Because he's a God who runs into the burning building for his people. But that's not the end of the Christmas story. See, Luke wants you to know what Jesus is up to here. Yes, he's stepping into brokenness, but that's not all he's up to. He steps into the brokenness ultimately to start tearing it apart. He starts to flip everything upside down. And that's what Luke wants you to see. He wants you to see a real king. So you, so far you've seen a fake king. Now Jesus wants you to see a real king who can bring real peace by turning everything upside down down. And that happens with the announcement to the shepherds. So if you think about this culture, <clears throat> this is the Roman Empire. And when an emperor was born, what would happen is a messenger or the, an angelos, which is where we get our English word angel, a messenger would come from the palace and run to the Senate. And they would announce to all these senators, hey, a new, empire, a new emperor is born. This is great. This is awesome. You guys should come check it out. And, the, and the, the senators would come to the birthplace and they'd have a big party. Well, what's being communicated there? Hey, someone important has been born. And so let's get other important people to come and verify like, yeah, we're all really important. It's this huge circle of importance. Who does Jesus send his messenger out to when the king is born? Shepherds. And not just any shepherds, poor shepherds. The text says this, they lived outside and they took care of their flocks at night. The reason that it points that out is because they couldn't hire anybody else to take care of their flocks for them. They had to watch them at night or they would lose their livelihood. These people were super poor and they were dirty and they were social outcasts. And God says, these are the people I want at my son's birth. These people are important to me. See, in the Gospel of Luke, Luke makes the point again and again and again, Jesus goes after the outcast. 
You think when Jesus makes his first public appearance in Luke's gospel, this is what he says. I've come to give sight to the blind, to help the poor. He is going after the vulnerable. That is not how the kingdoms of this world work. That is not, do you have something to offer me? Can we network? What can you give me? Oh, these people are important. I want to be around important people, so you see I'm important. But you see, in the kingdom of God, he's just starting to turn things over. No, no, no. You know who's important? The outcast. See, Jesus is starting to flip things around. And he doesn't just say, hey, those shepherds are important to me, and that's it. He gives them a message, and he gives them a job. So what's really important about the message is this. In the message that the angels announce to the shepherd, they announce who Jesus is, and they announce what he's going to do. They say, hey, here's some good news of great joy. When you get this, you're just going to be super joyful. This is what they say. Today, a Savior has been born. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. That, they would have contrasted that right away to Caesar. Like, oh, wow. Like, Caesar says he's that. And like, no, 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 no. A real king is here. And here's what he's come to do. The angels announce this. Glory to God on the highest and on earth, peace on those whom his favor rests. Now, before this week, I always thought that was kind of like a random like praise song that the angels had. They're like, all right, we're just out in public. Let's put on the greatest hits. Let's sing this thing. But they're being really specific. They're saying what Jesus came to do. Think about it for a second. Glory to God in the highest heavens, right? God heaven, right? And then on earth, peace among men. So we have God, we have man, we have heaven, we have earth. What's he doing? God's glorious. What, where do people get glory? from reigning. Kings have glory. So Jesus is here to reign. And what happens when he reigns? Peace. And what kind of peace is it? It's a holistic peace. It's a peace between God and man and man and each other, man and creation. Jesus is here to set everything right. That's the message they proclaim to the, to the shepherds. Hey, and go tell it to these people. And we're going to give you a sign so that they know you're telling the truth. Here's the sign for you. You ready? He's going to be lying in a feeding trough. See, what, see the significance of that there? Just a few minutes ago, the feeding trough was this instrument of shame. Jesus was born. They had nowhere to put him, so they put him in this dirty, filthy thing where animals live. No baby should have been there. He's no baby, much less Jesus. Now... That manger has been given new meaning and new significance. It's a sign for God's messengers. He's starting to turn things upside down. He climbs into brokenness and he flips it over. This is an amazing sign. So um, just picture this for a second, right? Like <clears throat> no doubt people came into the, where the barn was because like a woman is giving birth. If you've never been around a woman giving birth, it's really loud, all right? And so these people hear that, they, they're sticking around, right? And so then all of a sudden you get a knock on the door. Who is it? Hey, this is going to sound really random. I know this is like kind of weird, but uh, do you happen to have a baby lying in a feeding trough here? Yeah, how'd you know that? Well, like we were just minding our own business. We were just out in this field and a bunch of angels showed up and told us that that baby's actually God and he's here to fix everything. And it says that the people who saw this were amazed. Now, the best analogy I could come up with to kind of describe what's really happening here is kind of lame. But just bear with me. So Conan O'Brien. <laughs> Conan O'Brien, let's say his sister back in Massachusetts had a birthday, okay? 
And so Conan really wants to like impress his sister. He wants to like, hey, I really want you to have a happy birthday this year. So he hires 40 Conan lookalikes to just bang on her door all day. So the first one, boom, boom, boom. And he tells a joke. He does the robot dance. He did all, like, all these things, just at, one after the other, a Conan impersonator. And her, he doesn't even have to say a word to his sister. She'll know like, oh, this is from my brother. This is what he's up to. That's exactly what these shepherds are doing. They're Conan impersonators. So you see, Jesus is said to be the new David. Who was David? He was a shepherd from Bethlehem. So what Jesus does is he goes out and he gets these shepherds from Bethlehem. He's like, hey, show up at the birth of the new David. They'll get it. They'll know, oh, this is who he is. Jesus takes something that was shameful, social outsiders, dirty shepherds, and he makes them the validating sign that the one lying in the manger was the Lord. And in the Bible, there's only one person called the Lord, and that's God, big G. They know that, oh, wow, this is God in this feeding trough. See that? You see how, what is happening here? Everything's starting to turn around in the midst of the brokenness. Jesus doesn't save people and pull them out of a broken world. He saves them in the middle of a broken world. He saves people and he makes them instruments of that redemption. Some of you are here and you may feel like, oh, I don't belong in church. Like, I'm not super churchy. These people have like a lingo and there's popular people here. I'm not a popular person. I don't fit in here. What Luke is trying to point out again and again in this chapter is that Christianity is not a good old boys club. It's not where the popular kids come to hang out. It's a place, it's a, it's a relationship where God has come after those who were outside. He's come after broken people and he transforms them, completely turns them upside down. He does everything. See, the, the, the message that the angels give as well, this is what it says, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. The word favor is another way of saying grace. The only way to experience this upside down world is to receive it by grace. Imagine watching someone do everything for you and then you're like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? No, no. You receive it. And Luke tells us that the only appropriate response to seeing God work like this is joy, is to just enjoy what he has done. So when these people show up at the birth of Jesus, everybody's amazed, like, wow. The text says something else that's really amazing. It says this in verse, I think it's 19, yeah. But Mary treasured all these things and pondered them in her heart. Why does Luke want to draw special attention to what Mary's doing right now? You see, Mary sees the experience that the shepherds have, and it sounds an awful lot like the experience she just had. Think about it. These shepherds were nobody uh, on a hill far away. An angel appeared to them. They were scared. She was a nobody. Living far away from Jerusalem, an angel appears to her. She's afraid. He says, don't be afraid, I'm going to give you a sign. Your cousin, she's super old, yeah, she had a baby. Same thing with the, the angels and Jesus. They say, hey, don't be afraid, God has come, he's in a feeding trough. Okay, so then they go, Mary goes and sees a sign, she hangs out with Elizabeth, her cousin, and she enjoys it, she's blown away by what she sees, and she writes a poem, and we call it Mary's Magnificat. 
It's in Luke 1. The, the, the shepherds see it, and they leave. What it says is praising and glorifying God. That those words right there are really important, praising and glorifying God. Because what did the angels do? Verse 13 says this. They were praising God and saying, glory. Heaven has invaded earth. And, and the, the shepherds are now about the business of heaven. Mary sees all this and says, oh, this little one in a manger, he's here to bring about a new era, an era of joy. The world was one way. It was broken. It was broken just a few minutes ago. It's still broken. It's not all the way fixed. But we know that he has set things in motion. And if he can do it, he hasn't even said a word yet. He's a baby. And look what he's doing. If we can trust, if this baby Jesus can transform things, imagine what grown-up Jesus can do. Saying, trust this Jesus. Worship. Enjoy this Jesus. So she treasured these things in her heart. It changed her. Completely transformed Mary. There is nothing left for you to do when it comes to Jesus and watching him work. The only thing you can do is enjoy it. That, and that gives him all the glory. Joy in the midst of darkness is testimony that something awesome happened. When we cultivate a life of joy, we're showing that, hey, we do trust God. We see this brokenness. We know it isn't the way it should be, but we know he's up to something because look what he did in the past. Look at what he did with wicked Caesar Augustus. He used that wicked king to bring about the birth of his son, to keep a promise. I wonder what he's doing with our wicked kings. I wonder what he's doing with the evil we see all around us. I don't know, but I trust him. And then when we see how he turns things upside down, when he brings people to faith, people who didn't have it together at all, and he completely transforms them, we can just say, wow, that's our God. That's our Savior. He's amazing. That's called worship. Another word for worship is joy. The Christian life is a life where we cultivate joy. And the only way to cultivate joy is to stay by Jesus. You can't like convince yourself, all right, be joyful in the darkness. Be joyful in the darkness. Look to him. See what he's doing. The Bible isn't naive at all about darkness. The Bible isn't saying like, oh, just pretend the world was great that Jesus was born into. No, 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 no. It wants you to see that, that there is a broken world, but Jesus starts tugging on the strings and it's starting to unravel. If you're here this morning and you're a Christian, you're a down payment. You're a guarantee that everything's going to be different one day. And all you need to, the only call in your life right now is to enjoy that, to cultivate a life of being blown away by what Jesus does and how he works. Sometimes the best things in life are hidden in plain sight. What God has done with you now is he's taken people who are outside, transformed you, and he's put you in plain sight. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I pray that we would trust your son, that we would see this one who's working and he's transforming things, and we would just enjoy that. We would be a part of that transformation not working to do anything, but just letting you just come in and change us, Lord. Lord, we love you, and we're so grateful for the work that you're doing at this church. I ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.